how firm a foundation. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word, that it does give us a firm foundation for our lives. And so now we pray that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit, through your word, through these words of the Apostle Paul, written to that church in Rome just under 2,000 years ago, but also written for your church throughout all ages so that we might know you today through Jesus, put our faith in him and live for him. Please would you enable us to do that now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So chapter 1, verse 16 in Romans. I am not ashamed of the gospel, says Paul, because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Well, salvation, you say, Paul. Why do we need to be saved? Well, he goes on, because the wrath of God is being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of human beings who suppress the truth by their wickedness. This is the greatest problem the human race faces, says Paul. Not, first of all, COVID, not cancer, not crime, not global warming, not poverty. First of all, our broken relationship with our creator who loves each human being that he's made and each of those human beings has turned their backs on him. And the result that we've seen over these last couple of weeks is God's wrath, his right and just and fair judgment of human sin. And then we saw last time Paul begins in in these chapters, in chapter 2 and chapter 3, he closes off all the possible responses to that. You know, I completely agree the world is a terrible place, Paul, we heard an imaginary reader say last time. But surely you're not talking about me. You know, you, you just mean the people who, who aren't good, you know, the dictators, the murderers, the bigots, and, and you know, compared to them, I'm, I, I'm okay. I, I, I'm not like that. And Paul says, no, I mean you as well. Comparisons won't save you. Shortcuts won't save you. Privilege won't save you we saw last time. And now the argument continues and the focus switches from the proud moralist who's tempted to boast that they're good enough to another kind of pride that says again, yes, you know, I completely agree with you, Paul, that the world is a terrible place and even that there is no place for looking down on others and saying that you're better than them. I agree with that. But still, I'm just not convinced that you really mean somebody like me because I'm a member of your chosen people. And let's not forget why you chose that people. You chose them to fix the world. The story of the Bible begins with a, with a good creation that goes bad when the first human beings sin and reject God. And the result is a curse on that creation and on the creatures who have sinned. But then in Genesis chapter 12, God chooses a man called Abraham, later Abraham, and he, and he says from him is going to come a great nation. And that nation would be both blessed and a blessing to the world. And blessing is what you need when the world is under a curse. So it's going to come through the descendants of this man, Abraham. And the idea, therefore, is that the descendants of this man, Abraham, are to be distinctive and different. They are to be part of the solution. And so now Paul turns to the person who says, Paul, I've heard everything you've said so far in this letter to the Romans, but surely... You can't mean me because surely I'm part of the solution. 
not the problem. So on the one hand, what we've got in these verses, in verses 17 to 29 in in Romans chapter 2, is a kind of historical question. You know, what is the place of the people of Israel, the Jews, in God's plan? But we need to understand when Paul says, verse 17, if you call yourself a Jew, it's not that anyone who isn't Jewish can stop listening, because actually the likelihood of a non-Christian Jew being in his original audience that he's writing to is pretty small. But he wants to address anybody who says, you can't really mean me when you talk about your judgment coming because I'm a member of your people. So today somebody might say, well, you know, I've heard all this, but you know, I'm part of the church and I've got the badge to prove it and I've been baptised. So clearly all this talk of wrath and anger and judgment for sin really applies to other people not people like me, because I'm here to tell the world this message. And if we hear that and we think, well, hang on a minute, I really did think I I didn't need to worry about the fact that God was going to judge the world, and, you know, it's my job to tell other people about this. Well, maybe Paul is grabbing our attention as well. His message in these chapters, you see, is that all people everywhere are part of the problem. And crucially, You can't be part of God's solution until you first admit that you're part of the problem. You can't be part of God's solution until you first admit that you're part of the problem. If you remember one thing from this morning, that's the thing to remember. And to prove that and to demonstrate that, in these verses, he tells the story of God's people. They had a mission, they failed in that mission. The failure brings condemnation from a surprising source, and then the result is a new and redefined people of God. It's the story of the people of God. Is it our story too? Well, let's read on and see. We come first of all then to the mission of God's people in verses 17 to 20. The mission of God's people. He sums up here the mission that God's people were given that began with the promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and continues when he gave his people the law to set them apart from the other nations and teach them about his character as their God and to teach them his moral standards such that, and he gave gave them the law and the result was the law became a kind of badge of honour for his people. You know, we are the people who've been given God's law. What an honour. We know God. What a wonderful thing. Can you see this in verse 17? And then verse 18. As a result, you know, we do know God's will because we know him. And so verses 19 and 20, do you see? Here he says, you know, we're guides for the blind. We're lights for those in the dark and instructors of the foolish and teachers of children. Do you see the point? The point is the world is blind and dark and foolish and childish, but here is a people who have been given the law of God, the law of Moses, so that they might be blessed and be a blessing to the world, to the nations. And so the tone in these verses, in verses 17 to 20, is positive. The the old and new international version says, you you brag about your relationship with God. Actually, that's a bit over the the top as a translation. It, It means, really, it just means they boast positively. We know God. What a wonderful thing. And if it was true of God's people then, it's not hard to see how God's people now might feel the same and should feel the same. Because, you know, don't we have God's word? Don't we know God? 
Isn't the world around us blind and dark and foolish and childish? You know, whether we're talking about selfishness and greed and the rich get richer and the poor get poorer and family life is undermined at every turn and violence and stabbings fueled by drug use and gangs and vulnerable women in crisis encouraged towards abortion and, and here are God's people and we have good news and we can say, we know God and you can know him too through Jesus Christ. There is hope. There is purpose. There is meaning. There is an answer to suffering and COVID and depression and despair. There is a God who loves you, who loves his world and wants to put it back together. Let us introduce you to him. And so do you see, we we want to be able to cast ourselves as part of the solution as Christians, not part of the problem. We want to take the part of the patient, the, the doctor, We want to take the part of the doctor rather than the patient. And there is a right sense in which that indeed was the mission of God's people Israel in the Old Testament and it continues to be the mission of God's people now. But we need to read on to see there is a problem. Not out there in the world but with us who are meant to be the solution. And so we see then next in verses 21 to 24, the failure of God's people. The failure of God's people. You then who teach others, he goes on, verse 21. Do you not teach yourself? He begins to highlight his fundamental problem. Those who were commissioned to be the solution have not practiced what they preached. They've preached against stealing, but have stolen. They've preached against adultery, where they've committed adultery. They've preached against idol worship, and it's not entirely clear what he means by robbing temples, but it maybe refers to the idea that even while they're preaching about worshipping God alone, they have in practice taken on the idols of the nations around them to worship them as well. They boast in the law, but they dishonour God by breaking the law. And we heard this kind of accusation in the first reading from Micah chapter 3 of those who kind of say, everything's fine, we're okay, we've got the law, everything's God's on our side. And God, in, 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 through Micah at that point, is saying to them, no, listen, it's not like that. But what here does, does Paul mean here when he says these things about, particularly about the people of Israel? He can't mean that every Jewish person everywhere who might hear this is a thief or adulterer or a, an idol worshipper. Although remember that in the Old Testament... What was Israel accused of? Of robbing God of the honour due to him. She was accused of spiritual adultery. She was accused generally of idolatry. So do you see theft, adultery, idolatry? These were big themes in the prophets. And their accusations of the people as a whole. This is what those who have uh, the descendants of Abraham are like and have been like. But it's not an accusation of every individual. It's saying that as a nation, that they have not loved God with their whole hearts, as the law called them to do. And therefore, far from being the solution to the problem of sin in the world, they become part of the problem. The doctor is infected with the disease that they've been called on to cure. 
Now, human beings, you see, generally have an extraordinary capacity to demonstrate total blindness to our own sins while simultaneously correcting others. In fact, this is particularly true when our goal is to earn our way to God through our own merit and obedience. You see, Israel took the good law that God gave them and turned it into a ladder by which they could climb back up to God. And you see, if you're trying to climb the ladder to God, what you do is you play the comparison game. And you think, I can try and climb higher on the ladder back to God. How do I do that? Well, I either do it by minimizing my own sin or by emphasizing the sin of others. And that helps me climb up because I can say, well, I'm better than that person and I'm doing better and and I'm not as bad as you think I am, so I'm climbing up. And that is how Israel ended up pointing out the sins of the nations around them while blinding themselves to the sin in themselves. And the point is not that this is just true of the people of Israel. Is it not true of us as well? And the tragedy is that this failure can still be seen in God's people today. So, in the last year or two, We've seen some very high-profile failures among those who are looked to for leadership in the wider Christian world. Recently, the international apologist Ravi Zacharias was revealed after his death to have been a serial sex offender who secretly owned a string of spas and massage parlours which he used to assault women. Now, Ravi Zacharias was maybe a bit more well-known in the USA, uh, but he did have a little bit of traction in the, in the UK as well and an organisation of people going around um, preaching the gospel and you know, not, not doing the things that have, he's been accused of. I guess closer to home, though, someone who's much more well-known to many of us is Jonathan Fletcher, who's been accused of spiritual abuse and coercing people into naked massage and physical discipline. There's going to be a report released about that in the next month or so. These are people who publicly taught and proclaimed high moral standards along with the gospel of God's grace. But privately, it was a different story. There was a mismatch between public and private lives, calling people to do one thing and then practicing another behind closed doors. And you come to then to verse 24. What do you read? It, it, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And that's as true today as it was when Paul wrote that. See, in the case of Ravi Zacharias, it was an atheist blogger who spotted first that Zacharias had been inflating his academic credentials and claiming to be more than he was. And he he spotted this while he was still alive and still in ministry. But he was ignored and sidelined and silenced until multiple victims began began to come forward after his death. And they came forward independently with credible stories of what had actually been going on and the abuse that had been going on behind closed doors. And, you know, we can see this in in these high-profile things that have gone on, but actually, if we're honest, we know that the, the same kind of inconsistency, not necessarily the same 
acts. And the same um, <clears throat> great kind of public sin, but actually the, the same kind of inconsistency can go on for any of us, even if it's not notorious, obvious sin that disqualifies people from public ministry. But put, you see, there's a, there is a point here for all of us to say, if our lives don't match our message, will the world take us seriously? So if our neighbours look at us and see that, really, when it all comes down to it, that you've got exactly the same values and the same lifestyle as they do, but, you know, you just go to church on Sunday, well, why should they listen to us? See, Paul's point here is that God's people are called to be different, to live distinctively, to live out the law, which we do now in Christ, as he explains later in Romans, But if we don't live like that, if we we fail in our mission, that's his point. We become part of the problem in the world, not the solution. Do you see? So the failure of God's people. And that then leads, thirdly, to the condemnation of God's people in verses 25 to 27. Now, these, these verses would have been utterly shocking to any kind of Jewish audience, Christian or not. Because what's he saying here about circumcision? You know, circumcision is the sign of being in God's people. It's a sign of who the good guys are. It's how you know who they are. You know, how you know who the good families are in the nation. You know, they're the ones, they, they, they circumcise their male children on the eighth day. And this is what sets apart the whole nation. And now Paul is saying, this failure to love God with your whole heart and to live out and to practice the law that you've been given makes it as if you had not been circumcised which means you're a gentile means you're outside the people of God and even more shocking here are these gentile Christians again and we we heard about them in, in verses 14 and 15 last time here they are again actually doing what the law requires of them they are loving God and living for him and he says that makes them as if they had been circumcised <laughs> And so can you see what he's saying? These Gentiles, the Gentiles are meant to be the guys who are the problem. They're the, they're, they're the problem in the world, and, the, and God's people are meant to be the solution. And he's saying, no, people are coming to faith in that part of the world that you think is the problem, and they are showing you up, and they are condemning you, God's people, and making it as if you had not been circumcised, and they had, because they're doing what is required of them, and their faith is in Jesus, and they're living it out by loving God. The patient is showing the doctor to be a fraud. Do you see? The student is condemning the professor. And again, this is a theme we'll see much, in much more detail through the book. But he's, Paul is saying something similar to what we saw last time. It's not merely hearing the law that makes you part of God's people. It is actually doing it. With the implication that merely hearing the law and not doing it will make you subject to condemnation in a much more serious way than if you'd never heard it in the first place. Now, there's a program on TV that comes on sometimes called 24 Hours in Police Custody. I don't know if you've seen it. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's a real-life documentary kind of program 
showing the inner workings of you know, police custody. And they go to Luton Police Station. And they just film what happens, and they film the particular sort of 24 hours around when somebody's brought in and arrested and what happens to them, how they get the... <clears throat> they have to get, get all their evidence together to move on to the next stage of prosecution in those 24 hours, otherwise they have to release them. So it's quite interesting to watch and see what happens. And most of the episodes are straightforward. You know, here's, a, here's somebody they think has com- committed a crime. Here's how the police do their business to catch them. Here's what happens next as they kind of get everything in place to move them on and get them to, to court or whatever. But there was one episode where the detectives were investigating a blackmail case. And they set up a surveillance on a, on a particular lay-by on a country road where the blackmailer had previously left something for his or her victim. And they were pretty confident that, you know, for various reasons, this guy was going to, or whoever it was, should, should turn up, and they'd be able to, if they covertly surveyed it, they'd be able to see who it was. And they couldn't understand the blackmailer didn't show up. And they're thinking, well, that's really strange. Something, something has somebody warned him? What's, what's happened? And then later, through an, a series of other investigations and clues, they realised actually what was going on was the blackmailer was actually one of the detectives on that surveillance team who'd been tasked with investigating his own crime. It's an extraordinary coincidence. And so uh, here we are, a little snapshot from the programme. There he is. He's being arrested at work while he's supposed to be doing the surveillance, live on camera, because they just happen to have this documentary team covering this case. So you can imagine, it's highly, highly embarrassing. And then you then get to see how police officers who commit crimes get judged even more harshly when their case comes to court. And he was sent to prison. Um, I'm sure he'll never work again as a police officer. It's a similar dynamic here, you see. Those who presume to be part of the solution cannot shortcut those warnings to all people everywhere. Before we can be part of the solution, we have to realise and admit that we're part of the problem. Otherwise, the result is failure and condemnation. Do you see? And then finally, in verses 28 and 29, we come then to the redefinition of God's people. So verse 28, a man is not a Jew if he is one only, uh, only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. When Paul says Jew here, remember he is talking as a Jew. He is, he is Jewish himself. He's a former Pharisee. And he's using Jew here as a term for being part of God's people. So he's saying, who are the true members of God's people? Is it those whose ancestors heard the law and were circumcised? Because that would be the standard answer to that question. You know, that's who the people of God are. So how we know who they are? No, it's not those. It's those whose hearts have been changed by the Holy Spirit. Now, it's important to see that, as as he argues here as a Jewish Christian, he's not arguing for the replacement of Jews within God's plan. 
because he is a Jew himself. So he, he talks about the gospel needing to go first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So at no point does the New Testament say, well, you know, therefore uh, ministry among Jewish people is, is irrelevant or unimportant. They're not written out, but they are welcoming God's people on the same basis of it as everybody. That's the point of Romans. All have sinned. All are part of the problem. All can come to God and be justified and declared right with him by faith in Jesus Christ. And we know, don't we, there is a whole history of the church and the rest of the world misunderstanding this and misusing verses like this while engaging in anti-Semitism. And that absolutely cannot be justified. But this, we need to see, don't we, this is Paul the Jew who has come to faith in Jesus the Jewish Messiah, showing that all people everywhere are sinners who can come to God now on the same terms by faith in Jesus. So God's people are now defined not by circumcision, but by faith in Jesus and being baptised in him. So on that basis, we're glad to support the work of Jews for Jesus. And it was great just now. We were praying for Stephen and Deborah Pasht, uh, working now independently as missionaries in Geneva to Jewish people. It's important that we do that. But with that redefinition of who God's people are comes a clear implication for the church today, which still needs to hear these warnings about hypocrisy, about preaching one thing and doing another, about using gospel ministry as a cover for abusing the vulnerable. See, what matters is not outward conformity, to any tick box list of laws, but inner transformation by the Holy Spirit. So that we obey God, not just when others are watching, but when God is watching all the time. Not just in public, but in private. So that, as Paul says, our praise is not from people, but from God. Verse 29. And that, in one sense, is the difference between the person who uses the law as a ladder to climb up to God to demonstrate their own righteousness and the person who realises the law shows them they can never do that, and that that righteousness must be received as a gift. It's slightly counterintuitive, but if we're using the law as a ladder to climb our way up to God, our concern actually in the end will primarily be what other people think of us, because we're playing that comparison game. But what matters is not whether we're more godly, but whether we look more godly than others. That's what will happen when we're trying to climb up that ladder. We're just worried about how we look. Do I look more godly than the person, that other person? So that we can justify ourselves in our own eyes and the eyes of those around us. And when we consider these contemporary stories of abuse among our leaders, Paul is reminding us what matters is the heart that we don't see, not just outward actions that we do see. And it's a reminder when we're choosing leaders of any kind, whether they'll have a national profile or, or, or a church leader or a small group leader or a leader of any kind in the church. What matters when we do that is not merely whether they can teach others, for example, but their character. It's very easy and tempting to measure people simply by their giftedness 
You know, they've got the skills, they know how to put a sermon together, they know how to put a Bible study together, they, they can handle money, they can organise a rotor. Paul would say, but what is their heart like? Is there evidence of the Holy Spirit humbling them and making them more like Jesus? Because if there isn't, and there are doubts about their willingness to confront sin in their own life, they're part of the problem and not the solution. Do you see? As Paul lays out this redefinition of God's people around faith in Jesus, he's showing we're not ready to be part of the solution until we've acknowledged that we're part of the problem, until we've confessed our sin and our guilt before a holy God and acknowledged our undeservedness before him and trusted gratefully in Jesus' death for us. Until we've done that, we are not ready to serve him. And then we're called to be committed in the power of the Holy Spirit to live a life of ongoing daily repentance with an openness, and honesty, and transparency about our sin. You see, never as the, the sorted ministering to the broken, but as people in need of change ministering to people in need of change. To m- those amongst us who are not yet trusting in Jesus, we, we, we want to say to you as a church, we, we know we are Sinners, We know we don't get this right. We know we are very imperfect representatives of the God who made us. But we want to be honest about that and say that is why Jesus died. Not so that we might go around sinning with a high hand and covering it up so that no one knows about it. But so that we might know what it is to be forgiven. Know what it is to have a fresh start and to have the Holy Spirit working in us to make us more like Jesus so that we can take that message about Jesus to the world. And to those of us seeking to do that, well, let's make this a daily commitment to repentance, to turning from sin, to <clears throat> trusting in Jesus, to be, being willing to be honest about our sin and our shortcomings and our failures. Because we have a mission that as broken people restored in Christ, trusting in him, being honest about our sin, when we've done that and as we do that and as we continue to do that daily, we are called then to represent this saviour that our lost world and we ourselves so desperately need. So let's pray now. Father God, we acknowledge before you that we're not ready to be part of the solution to the problems in your world until we've acknowledged that we ourselves are part of the problem. As we reflect on our own sin and our own brokenness, we confess our need for a saviour without whom we are lost. We come and we trust 
in him. And we want to do that not just once, but we do that daily. Repenting of our sin, walking in the obedience of faith, being honest with one another about our sin and our struggles and our shortcomings and our failures. So that as part of the renewed people of God, trusting in Jesus, you might then use us to bring this message about Jesus to the world. Not because we think that we've made it and we're sorted, but because as broken yet saved people, we have a message to share with a broken world. Help us to do that, we pray. Amen.